Welcome to the AI Asia Pacific Institute podcast. The rise of AI presents important legal and ethical challenges for society. In this podcast, we invite leaders from different industries and creators of new AI to debate the big questions. This is the AI Asia Pacific Institute podcast. Roger, welcome to the show. Hi, hello Kelly, how are you? I'm very good. It's uh, really great to have you here. Lovely to be here. Yeah, so I think we can start by um, introducing your work, um, especially interesting the work you're doing in building moral DNA, uh, which I believe is a great example of how using tech how we can use technology for good so can i invite you to share a little bit about your work there um and what what was the drive behind it i'm very happy to so um moral dna is a psychometric tool which means it allows us to uh, help people to uh take a uh, a questionnaire which reveals to them their moral decision-making preferences. And I developed this because there really isn't an effective uh, tool out there for people's moral or ethical decision-making bias. Um, There are many psychometric tools out there for extroversion, introversion, and so on, but um, not uh, not for ethical character. So I designed it uh, with a psychologist who's based in Athens, Greece, uh, just over 10 years ago uh, in 2008. And we were very lucky. We uh, persuaded the Times uh, in London, uh, PricewaterhouseCoopers, um, in conjunction with my business school, Cass Business School in London, to run two stories. Uh, The first story was to encourage readers of the Times, this is before the paywall went up, to to take the profile. And then after two weeks, we ran uh, the results and the Times ran a story on the results. We were expecting a few hundred people to complete it. Uh, We were all amazed that over 20,000 people from around the world completed moral DNA. So we had a fantastic database. And that was able to give us an insight into how humanity, how people around the world choose to make ethical decisions, excuse me, based on three, the three moral philosophies, which dominate uh, that thinking. And those three moral philosophies, um, we, we would, philosophers would call them firstly, consequentialism, which we uh, call more simply people. So that means how how do my decisions affect people? And clearly what we're aiming for is decisions, are decisions which, which help people rather than harm them. <clears throat> the second one um, we call values. <clears throat> Philosophers would call this virtue ethics. Um, and then the final one we call rules. <clears throat> Philosophers would call this deontology. 
So we have those three profiles, those three preferences. And from that, we get six profiles, depending on the order of those preferences. And those profiles, we give uh, names that people can identify with. And those types are philosopher, judge, angel, teacher, uh, guardian, and governor. So that was 10 years ago. And since then, we have continued to develop and refine the tool. We now have approaching 200,000 profiles from people around the world, mostly in the UK, because that's where I'm based. But uh, 40% are outside of the United Kingdom. And uh, we've also published a lot of research with um, organizations like the Chartered Management Institute, uh, the big um, consulting firms such as PwC and EY, uh, and also uh, Oliver Wyman. Uh, regulators, including the Financial Conduct Authority here in the UK, have also published research around moral DNA, and particularly its impact on the way people make ethical decisions in business. Amazing. Um, so how we've discussed, for example, one issue that we have with AI in practice, and that's something that we can see now, at how um, self-driving cars, for example, um, how how can a car make a decision in the same way that a human would do, right? So if a car needs to decide whether to go right or left mm-hmm. in terms of what life to prioritize, it's very difficult to replicate how a human would make that decision and imply those values into a machine. So I'm wondering how your work could play a role in terms of um, bringing those, um, you know, bringing those moral values, or if that's even possible. Yeah, um, obviously, this is a central question around AI and ethics. Um, so, I think the the answer that makes most sense to me is that um, because artificial intelligence is neither artificial nor is intelligence. Um, uh, and what I mean by that is it's coded by human beings and because of the demographics of the people coding artificial intelligence, it has a bias towards uh, young uh, white males um, living and working on the West Coast of America, which is not typical of humanity. Um, and it's not intelligence because um, it, uh, at best its processing power is... Uh, if you take something, one of the biggest AI systems, such as um, Google's DeepMind AlphaGo Zero, uh, it's got the equivalent intelligence to a honeybee. Um, and I love honeybees and I love honey. But um, it's not that intelligent. Uh, so the problem we've got is how, how, how can one begin to expect that um, a machine learning um, engineering tool uh, which is designed to recognize patterns um, how will it make a, an ethical decision if a it's no more intelligent than a honeybee um, in terms of its computational horsepower but also it has no uh, emotional um, uh, reference um, it, it's unable to calculate um, a decision that cares for people. 
um, and it also uh, cannot evaluate moral values such as fairness. Um, so uh, we're left with a problem um, which I think could in, in due course be resolved by us not expecting us to be able to create an artificial intelligence that has a moral conscience. Um, and in fact, uh, try and keep that decision-making uh, in the human space. Um, so one of the things that I'm working on with an AI operating system, a software boutique, is to um, use AI to map and interrogate the moral DNA database of human morality. Um, and in many situations, it can uh, reflect back to us what most people would think is the right thing to do most of the time. And this is what moral philosophers call descriptive ethics. I think the problem that AI has in the way that it's trying to build ethical values is it's trying to attempt something which humanity has been unable to attempt, which is a, a universally accepted set of ethical norms and taboos. Um, and there's a very clear difference, uh, for example, between um, the philosophical approach of Eastern philosophy based in Confucianism, where the good of the group, the community, is more important than the individual members. Um, whereas in the West, over the last um, two or three hundred years, we've developed a preference for individual human rights. And there's a fundamental clash between those two philosophical traditions. So, um, but, you know, we can't agree as a species what the right thing to do is in any situation. Um, so why do we expect we can program an artificial intelligence uh, machine to do the same? When it comes to the trolley dilemma, which is the reference you made about programming uh, autonomous vehicles, um, the uh, trolley dilemma cannot be resolved in a way that's satisfactory to most people. Um, I mean, it's, a great, it's a great hypothetical dilemma, but I, I think that we need to step back a bit and say, why are we creating a situation where that dilemma has to be resolved either by people or by machines? So we have a situation where uh, when we design um, roads, vehicles, or indeed railway lines and trains or aircraft, airports and so on, we design, we try and design out as much as possible the chances of being um, faced with a trolley dilemma. And one of my biggest concerns around various applications of AI which are demanding an ethical resolution is, is why do we think, for example, that the motor car is something that's sustainable in a global environment uh, which is heading towards catastrophe. Uh, you know, we can't even design uh, autonomous trains which run on tracks, so the opportunity for deviation off the track is obviously limited. Um, why then do we think we can create swarms of autonomous vehicles that are making 
multiple decisions about where they should go whilst at the same time maybe they're running on 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 um you know electricity but uh, how are we generating that electricity so so one of my biggest concerns uh, is not only how we code uh, morality into artificial intelligence i don't think we can um and the second thing is uh, consider the purpose and the application for artificial intelligence but let me give you a more positive example so the ability for artificial intelligence um and machine learning to recognize cancerous tumors in um mri scans uh, checking for example for breast cancer um the ai machine can do that with greater accuracy and without tiring um and if it's programmed in such a way that if it has a doubt it throws out that mri scan for a human being to double check that clearly is a purpose and a usage for ai which most people would agree is the right thing to do um i think that many people would stop and think about whether or not it's right to automate a a tesla which is capable of accelerating from 0 to 60 in under 2 seconds um what is the per- what is the point of that other than you know big thrills for little boys um and at the same time consuming uh, you know enough power to uh light a um a village in um parts of the developing world for a whole evening so you know that so there are two answers to that one is that i don't believe that ai um is ever going to be capable of resolving ethical dilemmas in a way that we can all agree about uh because we can't agree about it as a species and secondly we have to be very careful about the moral purpose of the applications we're designing artificial intelligence to resolve right that's very interesting so your position essentially takes us back to think about why why are we creating why are we creating in the first place absolutely it's like you know in all of the work that you do in terms of um the first question i always ask people is why are we here why do we want to do this what is the purpose of this thing we want to do and if you can't if you can't decide that what you want to do has a a moral purpose you can't agree what that purpose is and that purpose is moral then you it, it's a pointless exercise to then try and go ahead and try and do that achieve that purpose in a moral way because if the purpose is not moral then that's impossible and philosophers talk about this as um ends corrupting means in other words the end being the purpose the means being the way that we achieve that purpose yeah yeah so you wrote a book discussing how how we can decide what's right and find the courage to do it in this technology context how how would you apply that thinking if we had to think about ai and the technologies that we are building um so it's it's with any tool so um you know digital comes from the um 
the Latin word for finger, digit. Um, and everything that's digital at the moment is a tool in the same way that, so, you know, when we grasp um, a knife in our hand with our fingers, uh, we can we can use that knife to prepare f- the food we need to eat in order to survive and thrive, or we can use it to kill or injure an, another human being. Um, so for me, again, it goes back to this this question of of purpose and um, asking ourselves if we have a if we have an application, a potential application for AI, which enables us to survive and thrive as a species within the wider environment that we require in order to survive and thrive. So in other words, um, all of the other parts of the ecosystem that are necessary, everything from a climate that's moderate um, to um, other species and life forms such as insects and our friend the honeybee um, and other pollinators that we require um, for our food, then, um, you know, then I think that we can start to look at um, applications which are purposeful um, and which enable us to um, program the artificial intelligence to spot patterns and then enable us to achieve those purposes which we've agreed upon and the one that's obviously staring us as a species uh, right in the eyes at the moment is what's going to happen to our environment and our climate over the next 30 years. Um, Why aren't we using artificial intelligence to start modelling our environment and our climate in order to help us make the right decisions to create a sustainable environment for ourselves and our ecosystem going forward? Um, so that's, you know, that again is going back on the purpose question, but, um, I don't know if that, if that answers your question. Yeah, I think it does. I think the issue is how do we find a common purpose, Mm -hmm. right? Because we know there are individuals all over the world with the power to create, um, these powerful tools at the moment. So how do we create you know, find a common ground. Well, the United Nations is spectacularly failing to do that. The major powers in the world, so the Security Council, (laughs) the G8, the G20, are unable to agree on how we, uh, even accepting that we're facing existential threats going forward. Um, So until human beings can agree, um, A, what the threats are that we face, um, then what's the point of trying to, um, you know, design AI to do it um, uh, or to apply it to, you know, what I referred to earlier as the the boys' toys and their fast cars? I mean, it's it's absolutely ridiculous that we're, yeah. we're devoting so much. I mean, the other thing is, um, you know, the tech billionaires, the super billionaires, um, such as, um, you know, Elon Musk um, and so on, is that they're, you know, they're also using AI and technology um, to explore um, outer space with a, a vision of us migrating from the Earth to Mars when we can't even 
establish a colony on the moon. Um, you know, all the research is pointing to the fact that we don't have the time to do this. We don't have the experience to do it. Um, why, why are we, why are they di diverting um, tens of billions, potentially hundreds of billions or trillions of dollars into these vanity projects? Um, you know, we, sh we shouldn't be doing that. Um, uh, in, my, in my view, we should be uh, using technology and AI uh, in order to fix the problems we've got. We need to clean up our own backyard uh, before we go and try and trash another planet. Yeah, that's a, that's a good interesting point there that I haven't thought about personally. Um, I think that we think of technology as, you know, bringing the tools to fix all our problems, including the environment problems, um, and that might be a mistake. Um. Well, I think I think that um, if we use so, there are things that artificial intelligence and machine learning can do that we can't do, or well, we can do it, but it takes far too long, and we're not accurate enough. So I'm not, um, you know, so I'm, a, I'm not a luddite when it comes to AI and machine learning, and even you know further developments around that. It's just that there is a fundamental philosophical problem here. If you take something like OpenAI as um, as a venture, um, which is backed by, you know, big tech companies. Microsoft, I believe, has just made a billion-dollar investment in it. Then, um, I, you know, I think we've really got to um, understand the limits of technology when it comes to trying to replicate the human brain. And the human brain is not even the human mind. So... Philosophers rarely talk about the physical brain. We will talk about the human mind because we recognize that the human mind um, operates at levels that we can barely understand from a physiological level. Um, so, for example, most, most people talk about the, bo the, the single-body mind uh, system or complex, which is made up of 35, roughly 35 trillion human cells of which several billion are operating within as part of the physical brain and the central nervous system. And then we've got another 35 trillion life forms operating within and on our bodies, uh, which help us to function. Most of them are symbiotic life forms, bacteria, viruses, archaea, um, and so on, fungi. Um, uh, and they all help our minds to function. So, for example, if we have the flu or, or a bad cold, the virus can make us feel depressed. Well, good luck in trying to program that one. If we have a drink, which enables us to be more creative before we fall asleep, um, good luck in program programming that one. If we take um, a psychedelic mushroom, which has enabled us to do all sorts of weird things, if you take the Beatles at their prime and the amazing songs that they were writing at the time of Sgt. Pepper's Lonely Hearts Club Band, how, how do you program the effects of LSD on the human mind? So, you know, what I'm saying here is that, curiously, Artificial intelligence programming assumes that the human brain is the same as the mind 
and that it is a binary digital edifice that can be modelled. And I'm suggesting that that is, that is not true, and in fact it can never be modelled. I mean, some neuroscientists have described the human brain, which is just the physical side of it, as the most complex object in the observable universe. That it's, it's going to be impossible to program those billions of brain cells, the neurons, the synapses connecting them, all of the other biochemicals that make our thinking coherent. And therefore, I do not believe that we should be trying to replicate the human mind. We should be investing in those aspects of thought and calculus that a machine can do faster and more reliably than we can. And that is the digital domain. That is the binary. It's the zeros and ones that machines can calculate incredibly quickly and most of the time without error or fatigue. Yeah, as it has been demonstrated, right, I think we have AI, you know, we have an AI that uh, was able to win against the best chess player in the world um, a few years ago, actually. So, yeah, and, and the same, and absolutely, but, you know, our um, DeepMind's AlphaGo Zero, which also now is able to beat any human chess uh, Go player, it's a sandbox. All it can do is play Go or chess, um, unless it's reprogrammed. Um, whereas a, a player, of a human chess player or Go player, can not only play chess and Go, I'm sure they can uh, they can do all sorts of other things like you know walk around, um, uh, make babies, um, you know uh, write music, paint, um, uh, build you know uh, garden, build build things. You know this is this is what a this is what we already do really well. We're we're incredibly able multitaskers. And our ability to learn from one of our talents and apply things to others is what makes us and others, other mammals and other species so powerful in terms of our ability um, to think. Uh, that is true intelligence. Um, yeah. So does that mean you don't... There are various theories about superintelligence. For example, Nick Bostrom is one of the biggest supporters of this theory. So does that mean that you don't really believe that a machine can supersede our intelligence? Um, only if we can create a truly qu quantum computer. Now, what I mean by that is that we don't understand quantum physics. At the moment, we're operating... Our computers are pretty much operating within Newtonian deterministic physics and mathematics. Um, I, I would never say that it would be impossible to create a superintelligence because I think theoretically it's possible if we're operating at the quantum level and in effect destroy time and space. In other words, um, you know, this is Kurzweil's, I think, um, I think he's, I think the singularity is not perhaps his description of a superintelligence. It's the singularity for me is more about space-time. And if we can inhabit and operate within a quantum universe, 
and therefore there's no such thing as time and space, then that's possible. But if that's if if we achieve that, then we can travel anywhere in in, in the universe instantly. Um, maybe the super intelligence is in effect a spaceship that takes us to these places. Um, Sorry, say again. Then we wouldn't need the self-driving car anymore. Absolutely, (laughs) Um, and and but there are significant mathematical problems to to overcome uh, in terms of trying to build these, um, just using Newtonian, um, uh, you know, operating in the Newtonian universe. So, for example, um, the Black Swan by Nicholas Taleb. Um, he recounts a, a thought experiment by a very famous physicist and mathematician who's so famous I can't remember his name. But effectively, it's the billiards game, and it's working on it's it's it actually calculates what you need to know in order to predict um, where you need to hit the cue ball with your snooker cue in order to uh, hit. The, uh, the the cue ball to hit your first red ball. That calculation is really easy to do, and obviously professional snooker players do it all the time. When you get to calculating where you need to hit the ball with what speed in order to hit for the fifth ball that you've hit, uh, to hit the sixth ball, you need to take into account the gravitational pull of the players. When you get to something like um, hitting balls one after the other up to ball number 50 or to 55, I can't quite remember the number, you would need to know the position, speed, spin and charge of every elemental particle in the observable universe in order to make that calculus. So there are mathematical challenges that even the largest potential supercomputers with so-called artificial superintelligence will not be able to compute unless they're operating within the quantum universe. Right. And if you take take Google, the word Google derives from the word Googleplex. And a Googleplex number is a number as large as the number of elemental particles in the observable universe. So I think in many ways, um, you know, uh, the founders of Google were very understanding of the size of the computational um, tasks that, that we need to overcome in order to achieve what artificial intelligence can achieve. Um, providing it's the right sort of purpose. And for me, it's not artificial intelligence, it's augmented intelligence. In other words, it is, you know, it it is something that we can use as an extension of the human mind, not a mind in itself. It may look and sound like it's got conscience and consciousness, but it will not be. Right. And so going back to how you how you describing that it can never be this it can never work the same as our mm-hmm. mind. What about our values? Uh, think about values that most yeah. human beings would have. 
if we're trying to replicate that? Is that it's is not, that possible? It's not. If you're talking about moral values, so a moral value such as, so if you look at virtue ethics, there are some very clear moral values that we use to make difficult judgments. The problem with those values are, even though I might say to you, well, we need to do the fair thing, um, we can agree that intent, but actually agreeing what the fair thing is, is really difficult because what's fair for you and what's fair for me might be quite different. Yeah, depends on our background, where we were yeah. born, our, our history. If we come to something which is which many philosophers argue is, is the, the root of ethics, which is, so Arthur Schopenhauer said, compassion is the basis of morality. We tend to find that we make, uh, that most people tend to agree on the decisions we make in order to sustain a friendship, a special relationship with a significant other, our ability to raise children and to look after the elderly. That derives from the ethic of love, the moral virtue of love. Um, so uh, it's difficult. It's difficult to describe. We know what it feels like. We know what it looks like when we uh, when we see it and receive it. But good luck on programming it. Yeah, not that it's easy. It's not because love is not a virtue that stands on its own. So if you go back to the trolley dilemma, there you have a dilemma between do I decide to kill um, five strangers or my best friend? Correct. Or do I decide to kill um, older person or exactly. a younger person? Which takes us back to the original question that I asked is, why are we putting ourselves in situations which cannot be resolved in that way? So what we tend to do is we tend to avoid putting ourselves into those morally impossible situations. And yes, it's fine for a philosophy class to debate it, but we really don't have the time to do that. We know that there are irresolvable ethical dilemmas. Um, we just need to get on with, um, with you know, facing up to in my view, the mess that our species is making of its own home at the moment. And, uh, for example, I'm, you know, I'm a Brit, I live in Britain, everybody's anxious about Brexit. It's actually a very small thing compared with the, the wider environmental challenges that we face. Um, it's irrelevant to that. What we need to be doing is, is investing our energy and our ingenuity in developing um, computational systems that enable us to calculate how we can uh, encourage more diversity, biodiversity in our environment and to slow and then reverse uh, car um, carbon emissions and climate change. That's where we should be uh, deploying artificial intelligence. We shouldn't be worried about building something that can beat us at chess or go um or building phallic rockets to take us to mars thanks very much to mars thanks very much jeff bezos um what we should be doing is is using our humanity and our ingenuity to fix our own backyard yeah 
Because essentially technology works as a mirror, right? Um, for example, we can see there are a lot of ethical issues with AI in human resources um, now, for example. So um, if we think about how we could work around these issues, it, it's prob it probably involves in practice working uh, both inside the institution and also in deploying the solution. So the problems need to be resolved first with the people actually working there. What are the you know, what are the ethical problems that they have as an organization before they can actually train Absolutely. the machine? Absolutely. It, it goes back to the purpose. Why are, we, why are we trying to design an artificial intelligence application to this particular question or problem? It always goes, goes back to yeah. that. Yeah. So as we're heading to the end, what is your, your opinion in terms of what the future holds or what, what steps we can take in practice. Uh, and this might be, you know, the tech companies, the general population, uh, institutions, um, to work around this problem. Um, I, in a way, um, it's difficult for me to um, begin other than, you know, just boring the audience here and repeating the fundamental questions that we need to ask ourselves about everything. So the questions I ask people yeah. are, why are we here? Which then goes to the what's our purpose in life? So, um, you know, what are we trying to achieve both for ourselves and for others? And to define that ultimately in what we do for others. And the reason that's so important is because unless we continue to build and reinforce our ability to help others, then our species is dead. Um, you know, the first and most important um, application of that is giving, uh, you know, bringing up the next generation. That in itself has an issue because one of the things that you may have to consider doing is to limit the number of children we're having going forward. Because if the human population continues to increase at the level it's increasing, and we've got aging continuing and aging in a way that's not very healthy. So, then you know, in the UK, um, we've now discovered there are more people dying of Alzheimer's and dementia than there are of, in heart, of heart disease um, beyond the age of 70. So we need to be asking ourselves some fundamental questions about ourselves and our future. Uh, we need to root it in um, our ability, and I'm going to use the word care for each other and for our environment, our, our environment. We need to stop thinking about the word economy meaning more. So our narrative in big business, our narrative in terms of governments is all about economic growth, um, which is always uh, exponential in terms of if it's, you know, doesn't matter if it's 3% per annum, it means that 3% per annum, you're going to double the size of, of your economy in, uh, I think it's 20 years, something like that, maybe 18. Uh, we need to answer the question, how much is enough? Um, and we need to start not only turning our human minds to these problems, but we need to be uh, using and designing artificial intelligence 
um, to do the things we can't do, which at the moment is effectively pattern recognition and training itself to learn um, how to uh, interrogate data. Obviously, there's a huge ethical issue which we haven't covered around the source of the data we use, the right, the rights to use that data, and so on and so forth, which is probably something we might need to talk about another time. Um, but effectively, those you know, if we ask those big questions, why are we here? What's our purpose in life? What are the values we believe in? Um, and those values are pretty much those that are essential for family, friendship, uh, and so on. And what are the good, simple rules we need to agree on? Um, uh, so what I mean by that, good, simple rules like um, don't hurt other people, don't take their stuff, and share resources fairly. So there are three very simple rules that um, people find helpful. We probably need to extend that to other species and to our environment going forward. And I can see many potential applications for uh, machine learning and artificial intelligence to help us resolve those questions. Right, so we got a lot yeah. to do. <laughs> and, you know, and that's what makes it exciting. Um, that's why I'm working um, with um, an AI boutique on uh, developing uh, the ability of their artificial intelligence operating system to interrogate our database of human morality. Not so that the system determines what right, what's right, but enable us to understand what we think is right in certain circumstances. Excellent, yes. Like, um, I look forward to see the, the result of this work you're doing. Um, thank you so much for joining. For this conversation, I think that the first step is for people to start thinking about these issues. Um, and that's probably something that happens from conversations like this. So thank you. And for people trying to contact you, what's the um, best way? If they way? just Google Roger Steer, S-T-E-A-R-E, -E, uh, there are not many of us around. Um, and it will take you straight through to my website, my Wikipedia entry, uh, my Kickstarter page, and so on and so forth. Right. And you, you're also releasing another yes, book. Yes, it's actually on Kickstarter soon, right? right now. It's called Thinking Outside the Inbox. It's, um, it's a book of the blogs I've been right. writing this year. Um, people seem to like it. So I've got enough blogs for a book. So I'm, I've written the book and um, trying to fund it through Kickstarter. Excellent. I really like the title. I do like playing with words. <laughs> yeah, it's very relevant. All right, Roger. Thanks so much again. And uh, Kelly, thank you so much for inviting me to talk with you about this. And I hope people found our conversation stimulating, provocative, helpful, thoughtful. And I'm very happy uh, for people to contact me. I'm on LinkedIn and on Twitter, but not Facebook. Um, for reasons that I'm not going to go into now. Ah, uh, I, I share the same. I share the same reasons, <laughs> but that's another story. Thanks, All right, thank you so much. We'll talk soon. Bye.